Father, we are really grateful to be together as your church. God, we're really grateful that this day that you've made, that you've called us in the Psalms to rejoice and be glad. And so, God, we're asking that both the rejoicing and the gladness that you command us to have, that you would please supply it. And we know that it is supplied to us through the Holy Spirit who we receive when we hear and believe the gospel. And so I pray that all who are gathered here, Lord, that you would help us to understand the gospel, to help us understand what is ours in Christ. God, help us as a church to continue to seek you. And I pray that during the seven weeks that we are gathering together in small groups and listening to these messages, God, that you be pleased to do for us the things that you said you love doing. And that is to reveal yourself. That is to draw people to yourself. That is to make yourself known. And that in seeing you and beholding you and knowing you, that you grant us life. So God, would you be pleased through the Spirit to grant our church life and all who are here. God, we are also praying that you would, through the Spirit, grant us minds to be able to comprehend what it is we're learning, that you would illuminate our minds to understand Scripture rightly. God, grant us new hearts through the Spirit to believe and trust you for the things that you promised. God, grant us a willing spirit as well to do the things that you've asked us to do. So, Lord, we're trusting that through this study you're going to be pleased to reveal yourself. And we ask that you begin that today as we gather in your name to hear from you. So, God, we do these things for us, we ask, for we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we don't have a particular text that we're going to be studying. And the reason is, is this is designed as an introduction message. This is an introduction week to the series on covenants. And so the aim and goal of this week is to begin to introduce us to the concept of covenant, but also to help us understand the objectives of why we're studying this together as a church, and then to show you why it's going to be so significant for all of us uh, to learn this concept of the covenant and how it will reap uh, practical benefits uh, for us. And so what I want to do is I want to read in Jeremiah chapter 9. It's a verse that I've committed to memory. It's something that I go to quite often. I love this verse because it challenges the American, I don't know, dream. It challenges the idea of idolatry in uh, our education, idolatry of power, the idolatry of money. And what it does is present for us an alternative, something which is greater, something which is better, something which is more life-giving. And so I want to read that in Jeremiah chapter 9, and it starts in verse 23. The prophet Jeremiah writes, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And whenever you read in your Bible that the the small caps, L-O-R-D, that's the official personal name of God, Yahweh. And so what God says is don't, don't boast in these things. Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, who practices steadfast love. And the Hebrew word there is hesed. And if you've already done the workbook in the first week, you understand that that, that Hebrew word means covenant faithfulness or covenant love. It's the idea that God is a covenant-keeping God. 
And that he practices not only covenant keeping, covenant love, steadfast love, but justice and righteousness in the earth. And then he closes with this. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. In other words, God desires to be known. God desires to be understood. He wants to be known personally. And that's why he uses his personal name, Yahweh. So God doesn't just want us to know about him God wants us to know him truly, know him as Yahweh, the God who practices steadfast love, the God who practices covenant faithfulness and justice and righteousness in all the earth. And the reason why he wants us to know that is because he says, in these things I delight. If you've ever thought to yourself, I want to know what pleases God. I want to know how to delight God. I want to know how to do things which bring a smile to his face. Here's your answer. God desires to be known. God desires to be understood. God desires to be known as Yahweh and understood as Yahweh who keeps covenant. Why is this significant? The reason why this is significant, this verse, is Yahweh is the name that God uses when he wants people to have a personal relationship with him. I want you to know me. I already know you. And for you to know me, I want you to know my name. My name is Yahweh. That's who I am. And the other side of it is Yahweh is a God who practices steadfast love, or in other words, covenant faithfulness. Now, if we want to know anything about God and we want to know anything about how he works as a covenant-keeping God, then we must know what in the world a covenant is in the first place. Because that is essential to who God is. Therefore, if we don't understand the covenant or we don't know what a covenant is, then we limit ourselves in knowing who God is. So we have two major objectives in this series together as a church. Two objectives. The first objective is that we become better Bible readers. And you can see the sign behind me, covenants, experiencing the unfolding story of God's love. The first part of that is experiencing the unfolding story. We want all of us as a church to become better Bible readers by understanding that in this book, as big a book as this is, sometimes it's confusing to read. You're like, what is going on? That this is, in essence, an unfolding story, a singular unfolding story with the overarching theme of God redeeming a people for himself. And that overarching singular narrative is authored by God himself. And so if we can understand that the Bible is a singular overarching story of God's covenant faithfulness in redeeming people to himself, then you will become a better Bible reading because you know what this book is all about. But not only that. When you read the Bible, you start to understand that the whole entire Bible hangs upon the framework of the concept of covenant. In other words, think about it like the human body. The human body has all of our bones and our spinal cord and all that kind of stuff. And hanging upon our bones and our spine and all of that is all the skin and all the meat and all the sinews and all that kind of stuff. You understand? So if you get rid of the bones and you get rid of the spine, what do you have? A hunk of meat. It doesn't do much. Likewise, if we don't understand the Bible and its framework 
upon which all the stories and all the characters and all the events are hung upon, then what do we have? That. Just a hunk of nothing. It doesn't make sense. Everything is disconnected. We have no idea what's going on. And so our hope is that we will experience together the unfolding story of the Bible. The unfolding story of God's has said, his covenant love and how he's redeeming a people for him, himself. So that's the first objective. Let's become better Bible readings by understanding what the Bible is all about and how it displays and reveals who God is. Which leads us to the second thing. Our second objective is to know God. We want to know God better. In fact, you see throughout Scripture that there's these commands, even in Jeremiah 9, know me, understand me, know me, know me. The reason why the Israelites were cast out of their land was because they did not know God, as it says. And so we pick it up in the New Testament even, and we see something which I think is really important for us. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, he writes this. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. The Apostle uh, Peter here is saying, grow. You have the obligation to grow. The question is, how and in what? And so he has for us not a suggestion, you know, like eat your fruits and vegetables. Great suggestion. Not many of us do it. But there's a command here. You better grow. Grow in what? In the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a command there that all of us who claim to be Christians, we must be growing in the grace and in the knowledge of who God is in the person of Christ. No exceptions. That's a command. And then on the lips of Jesus, you see John 17, where Jesus begins praying to the Father about his disciples and the Christians who would follow after them. And he says this, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, for Jesus, eternal life is when we know the Father and the Son, not only with our minds but in our hearts, and therefore we know them truthfully and we know them experientially. When we know God with our minds, we know God with our hearts, we know God experientially, that is eternal life. As we saw in Jeremiah 9, God desires this. God desires to be known. God desires to be understood. God desires to be known personally. God desires that we understand him to be a God who keeps covenant. But like I said already, God delights in these things and he wants this but if we're truly going to understand who he is then we have to understand what a covenant is for this book hangs upon the concept of covenant God himself has revealed himself as a covenant keeping God therefore the covenant what a covenant is and how it all fits together and what is going on in scripture with the concept of covenants brothers and sisters we've got to know this stuff so the first question is, well, what in the world is a covenant? Because in our culture today, we are not all that familiar with the term covenant. When's the last time you in casual conversation was talking about covenants? 
But we are familiar with contracts. And in the workbook, I, I differentiate the two and contrast them and show you what the difference is. So I won't do that now. You'll read about that in the workbook. <laughs> but what I want to do is define what a covenant is. So that way you can see just the contour and the different aspects of what a covenant is. And, and at the end of this message, you're going to see, oh, my goodness, it's more than I ever thought. So here's a working definition of covenant. And we're going to use it from a man named Thomas Schreiner. Dr. Tom Schreiner is a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he defines covenant like this, and I think it's a really good definition. He says a covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make binding promises to each other. The key to understanding covenant is relationship. Covenant is fundamentally a relationship in which two people voluntarily enter and that relationship, within that relationship, they exchange promises to one another. That's a great definition. It helps shape us in our understanding of it. I love what Pastor John Piper writes about covenants. He writes it like this. The reason why we study the covenants is because in them we see the biblical proof that God's job description does indeed include the responsibility to withhold no good thing for those who walk uprightly and to work for those who wait for him and to turn every strep throat and strip clutch and stinging put down for our eternal good. That's what I would offer as a definition of God's covenants, he writes. It's when God, makes a when God makes a covenant, he reveals his own job description and then he signs it. In almost every case, he comes to the covenant partner, lays his job description out and says, this is how I will work for you with all my heart, with all my soul and with all my strength. If you will love me as I am, cleave to me and trust me to keep my word. I love that definition. I love it because it helps us image-wise imagine God sitting on a desk, which is weird. But just imagine he's sitting on a desk. He has his job description of what it means to be God and how he interacts with his creation. He slams it on the desk and he points at it and says, this is who I am. This is how I work. This is what I've promised. And this is for you. I'm thinking, all right. And then when you read it, I'm your God and you're my people. I'm with you. I will never forsake you nor leave you. I'm yours always to the end of the age. You start reading these promises according to the covenant and you're thinking, I'm in. I'm in. And you also realize that because God has sworn these things by himself according to his covenant, that everything God has promised will never in a billion trillion years ever be unexperienced to put it positively when God says it when God speaks it when God promises it it is emphatically going to happen and there's no doubt because God has sworn it according to himself so covenants are how God relates to us it's how God grants us confidence and assurance it's how God provides us proof that he is for us and not against us. In other words, it's how God binds us to himself by his word. Oh, so good. 
Over the years, I've tried to teach on theological things and try to teach about what the Bible actually talks about. And when I do, every once in a while, I run up to resistance. People are like, eh, I don't really want that. Just give me some good old-fashioned life application. Um, help me to, like, tomorrow to live better. Um, or some people will say, can't you just give me something relevant? Who gives a rip about covenants? And I would simply, I just want to take a moment to say something about that. If covenants is the framework on which the entirety of the scriptures hangs upon, and if covenant is the concept that God delights to be known through and known as a covenant-keeping God, then God himself, if we are in personal relationship with him, demands that we know something about the covenants and the way in which God reveals himself is in scripture and all of this is dependent upon the covenants, then any life application and any relevant or practical thing that any Christian is going to give you must be rooted somehow in some way to the concept of covenant. And if not, it's just some human made gobbledygook that ain't gonna work anyway. And so what I'm trying to say is this is the most relevant thing you could have because this is foundational stuff. When people say, don't give me God, give me practical, I'm thinking, what are you talking about? If you don't want God, he's gracious, he'll give you that. And that place is called hell. I don't, I don't get this. So I want to make sure that we understand that covenants is so amazing. It opens up. And just imagine, I don't know if you've ever been to national parks, but have you ever been to like Yosemite or Zion or something like that? And I remember this clear day I'm driving in the car and people are like, wait till you see it. It's going to blow your mind. And I'm like, all right, you know, it's just rocks and trees. Who hasn't seen those? And so I remember turning the corner and at the end of Yosemite Valley, when I turned that corner out of one of the tunnels, I looked up, half dome, almost, I was lost it. It was like, and in that moment, I felt like I had just entered into a beautiful landscape in which no words that any human knows could adequately explain. And I remember going to Zion National Park and you're driving in on the south entrance and there's these like windows they carved out in the rock. And you're driving, you're like, oh, there's light coming through. <gasps> and the whole car, my, my, my family, we all stopped and everyone's like, did, did you see that? Yeah. And all of a sudden, light's coming up, and you're like, it's getting there, it's getting here. Getting <gasps> Did you see that? And it just was one time after another. Did you see? Did you? And we came out, and you saw the canyon, and it was mind-blowing. Can rocks really look like that? That is what the covenants does to us. You, you're going through the scriptures, and he's like, <gasps> seriously, that's what God is like? i got to get to another one. Are you kidding me? That's what he's like? Oh, I can't wait for the seven weeks, brothers and sisters. My hope and my prayer is that Larry and I will so faithfully preach God's word that you will leave every, every, every service, not with more practical how-tos, but I want you to leave in a state of worship. That is God. Whoa. That's good. So we can't ignore the covenants. Let me give you an example of why we can't ignore the covenants. You remember in Matthew chapter 26 when Jesus is establishing and instituting the Lord's Supper? Remember that? He's with his disciples in the upper room. He, they, they were eating. Jesus takes bread in verse 26. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat. 
This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. Verse 28. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I remember looking at that sentence and thinking to myself, why didn't Jesus, why didn't he just say, this is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins? I totally understand that. I get that. Imagine that. You have the bread, it's my body, here's the cup, this is my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And we'd say, yeah, I get that. Amen. Awesome. But yet Jesus included that little phrase, this is my blood of the covenant. Why did he do that? And what's the significance of that? And have we as Christians ever like taken the bread and cup in our hands and thought to ourselves, man, this is a covenant meal. Now, I'm not going to explain why that's important because we have seven weeks to do that. So we'll move on. When you open up the New Testament, the very first sentence you read in the New Testament is Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and it reads like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I don't know about you, but when you look at that, you're thinking to myself, wait a minute. I remember all those Christmas stories, and I'm pretty sure Jesus' mom and dad was Mary and Joseph. So why in the world is he described as the son of David and the son of Abraham? To make matters even more confusing, I know the chronology of the Bible, and I know that Abraham comes first, David is second. So why in the world is David listed first and Abraham second in his? What's going on? Well, I won't tell you what's going on because we have seven weeks to do that together. <laughs> but I will give you a hint. It has something to do with the covenants. And then you get to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. And the author writes, therefore, he is, meaning Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant. He's a covenant partner of the new covenant. So that. So that the purpose for which Jesus is a mediator of the new covenant is so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance called heaven. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. I look at that verse and I'm thinking, well, what's the first covenant? What's the new covenant? And then when you read in verse 15 that he is the mediator of a new covenant so that... You can have heaven. Means to me, oh, oh, the only reason we get heaven is because of the covenant, the new covenant. So heaven is dependent upon the new covenant. So when we put all these kind of facts together and you see in scripture, and that's just a sample. I had like 17 verses and I only have time for three. But when you put it all together, you start to realize, oh, by understanding the covenants, it helps us know who Jesus is and what he's done. This is my blood in the new covenant. Not only that, but knowing the covenants helps us know about heaven and hell. Hebrews 9. Knowing the covenants helps us know about God and his love for us. I am Yahweh, God who practices steadfast love, covenant-keeping love. And therefore, when you put all that together... Studying the covenants helps us know the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, who is God come in the flesh, crucified and risen for our salvation, and is coming again to redeem all things to himself. And that through believing in Jesus, repenting of our sins and trusting him, that we too can be made new 
and be called children of God. That is all dependent upon the covenant. Not only that, but it helps us become better Bible readers. So let me put it for you, church. This is what we're trying to do through studying the covenants. By studying the covenants, we understand the Bible better so we can understand the gospel better, which teaches us about the person and nature of God who sent forth his one and only son born of a virgin, who lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and was resurrected on the third day to secure for all time salvation for those who would believe. In order that we may rightly understand what it means to be saved from our sins and reconciled to a holy God, so that we can understand what it means to be people of God and to honor him and bring delight to him. In my mind, I'm thinking, you can't get more relevant than that. And so, brothers and sisters, if you were ten, had the tendency to go, I don't really want to study this, give me something practical, I'm telling you, this is the fundamental, foundational truth of everything else, which is both practical, relevant, and helpful. We can't ignore this. All right. Have I convinced you yet? All right. Maybe not. That's all right. We'll pray for you. All right. Since we have two objectives, become better Bible readers and know God better. The rest of this sermon is about helping us see those two things. How, in fact, we become better Bible readers and how, in fact, we come to know God better. So that's what we're going to do from here on out. So how do we become better Bible readers? We become better Bible readers by understanding that the Bible is a single overarching story of God's plan to redeem a people for himself. I've already mentioned that. But I want you to understand this. When you think about the most famous Bible characters in this book, who do you think of? Aside from Jesus, but who do you think of? Just think, think about it for a moment. Most famous Bible characters in your mind, who did you think of right now? David, David that's good. Say it out. That's fine. I know we're at church and you're like, can we do this? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I heard David. What else? What else? Yeah, yeah, a lot of people, Abraham, Moses, all right. So here's what we have. This is going to be great. I actually think not only in the church we, we know of famous Bible people, but I think in our culture people know of these famous Bible people. Here's an example. When you go to a sporting event or you hear about a sporting event where there's like this like very strong uh, team, which is like everyone thinks is going to dominate everyone, and then you have this lowly little Cinderella team that has no reason that they're there, everyone says, oh, this is a story of... David and Goliath. And sometimes I go, do you know what that story is about? A good team and a bad team? I, I don't know. And I just realized even in our sporting uh, arena and in the culture of American culture, we understand the person of David as being a significant person. You know what's interesting about David? God made a covenant with him. All right, let's think about another person. Next probably famous person in my mind is Noah. They made a movie about Noah. Not only that, but who hasn't seen the ark with the rainbow and smiling animals on the ark? <laughs> Everyone knows Noah built a boat and took a bunch of farm animals with them. But did you notice in no cartoon of, of Noah's ark, do you ever see the reality that actually the flood came as a judgment of God and he wiped out all flesh? And so in my mind, I'm wondering, why isn't there like more corpses floating on top of the water in these pictures? Do you see what I'm saying? Because you just like, that will frighten children. And so... One of my thoughts is, well, a lot of people know about Noah. Interestingly enough, God made a covenant with Noah. Mm. Or think about this. 
Most people know about Moses, at least aware of Moses, because that's usually the, the person who we become affiliated with around Easter time when, uh, you know, network television shows what movie? The Ten Commandments. And so everyone knows Moses looks like Charlton Heston. <laughs> everyone understands that. And so from there we understand that even Moses has a social kind of, I don't know, involvement and people are kind of aware of him. And interestingly enough, God made a covenant with Israel through the person of Moses. And then maybe we'll just go with like uh, Abraham. He's less familiar, I think, in our culture, but in our churches, everyone knows Abraham, Father Abraham. Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. And so everyone knows him. And if you watch the news, you'll see that the Abrahamic religions are often uh, identified as Islam and Judaism and Christianity. And so Abraham's name gets thrown around. And then Adam. Think about Adam. We don't talk about Adam very often, but who hasn't at least conceptually thought about Adam, at least as a controversial figure in their science classrooms? Did God really create human beings? Interestingly enough, God created Adam and he had Abraham and Noah and Moses and David. Very popular, very famous men who God made covenants with. And what's really interesting is these are not isolated Bible characters. In fact, each one of these Bible characters are building upon one another and they're coming eventually to a crescendo. And so what you have is you have Adam and then you're introduced to Noah, but Noah is, is kind of building on what we learned about Adam. And then you get to Abraham and Abraham's kind of playing off what you heard about the other two. And then you get to Moses and then you, and it starts building on one another. In the workbook, we call that continuity. And so we become better Bible readers, not when we just know about individual isolated characters, but we begin to understand that these individual characters are all contributing their unique experiences to the overall narrative of the Bible. It's called continuity, meaning there's similarity that runs through. There's a thread that weaves all these stories and people together. Let me show you a quick example. Maybe you don't believe me yet. Genesis 1.28, God creates Adam and Eve and it says that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the air, living things that move on the earth. So think about that. God creates, blesses, commands, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And then we read, fast forward, you know, the fall, Cain and Abel, um, and then you read all about the... Uh, genealogies of what's going on and then sin just just begins to tear up the earth and God says that's it I've had enough I'm wiping these folks out and then you get to Genesis 6 the flood comes 7 and 8 all the stories about Noah and his family upon the ark and then you get to chapter 9 and we read this very first verse after the flood waters subside it says God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Wait, what? I think I read that before. In fact, what's happening with Noah, God is saying, these people just are just wicked. I'm getting rid of all of them. Noah, I'm starting with you. Okay, this human race thing, let's start with you and let's see where it goes now. And so unless you know about Adam, you won't quite understand exactly what's going on with Noah. Or to make it even more clear, I think, 
Then you go through the book of Genesis and you finally arrive in Genesis 49 and 50. You're learning about Joseph and just the amazing things that God did to Joseph to deliver him from his situation. And you probably remember all that story. And then you get to Exodus chapter 1. And Exodus opens up with the nation of Israel enslaved in Egypt. They're groaning and longing to be delivered from slavery is going up to God. And then we read this in verse 7. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Wait, what? In other words, what God commanded to Adam and then he recommanded to Noah, we see in Exodus 1 that the people are actually obedient to that. They're multiplying and they're being fruitful and they're filling the land. But did you notice the one thing that was missing? No blessing. Because the blessing is going to come with redemption as God takes the nation of Israel out from the land of Egypt and delivers them from their slavery. That's amazing. So that's some continuity. Let me show you another one. It's a thing that the workbook will call typology. Ooh, that's fancy. Are you allowed to learn new words at church? So typology. And what that basically means is this, that God specifically designs characters, events, or circumstances to foreshadow something that will come about in the future. So God specifically designs a person, an event, a circumstance, a thing, in order to foreshadow something which is going to come in the future. And typology always works from lesser to greater. So as you read typologically across Scripture... You start with things and then you begin to read scripture and typology means things are becoming clearer, bigger, greater, grander until you get to the point where you actually see and experience the thing that that was foreshadowing. Now let me just show you from scripture what I mean. Romans chapter 5 verse 14. The covenants help us to see that Jesus is a type the Apostle Paul writes this, talking about Adam and sin and everything that happened and, the, and how Jesus has come to redeem. He says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even after those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, the Apostle Paul says the person of Jesus was a type, or excuse me, the person of Adam was a type. He was the type. He was something which was to foreshadow the one who was ultimately to come. So if we want to understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do, it is important for us to go back and figure out what in the world Adam was doing and what happened to him. Because Adam and his circumstances and situation is pointing forward typologically and foreshadowing this new Adam named Jesus. That's amazing. And then Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul writes this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, God made all kinds of promises to Abraham. And yet those promises were not for offsprings, plural. The promises were for the offspring, singular. And the offspring that was promised to Abraham really is Jesus. So the promise of land and blessing and offspring, 
they find their culmination and fulfillment in the person of Jesus. That's Galatians 3.16. That's typology. So if we want to know Jesus better, one of the things that we can do is go back to Scripture, become a better Bible reading by tracing the covenantal themes, understanding Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and seeing that all of these people are foreshadowing and their events are foreshadowing the ultimate reality who is Jesus. It's beautiful, beautiful. There's another covenantal pattern which I think will help us become better Bible readers and theologians. <laughs> Some people, I said that earlier and they're like, I don't really want to. No, 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 everyone's a theologian. The question is whether or not you're a good one. So <laughs> we're trying to help people become good ones. There's a pattern in scripture as we study the covenants. And the pattern is this. God does not establish a relationship with people by making a covenant. Instead, he establishes the relationship first and then he governs and maintains the relationship through a covenant. So relationship starts first Covenant comes afterwards, and the covenant is meant to govern and to maintain the purity of that relationship. Now, let me show you real quickly, and I only have time to read some of these verses. But in, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, God saw that the earth was filled with violence. God saw that it was corrupt. So he says to Noah in verse 13, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I'm going to destroy with them the earth. And then in verse 14, then God says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. So God determines in his mind, here's what I'm about to do. Hey, Noah, here's what you're going to do. And then you pick it up about three chapters later. After the floodwaters have subsided, after Moses built the ark and rescued his family and many animals, it says that God says to Noah in verse 9, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And then it says in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off from the waters. And then he says, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature. Verse 13, I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it's a sign of the covenant. So the relationship began between God and Noah when God called Noah and chose Noah. You go and do this. And Noah responds to God's call with faith and obedience. Okay, you want me to do that? Okay, I believe that a flood is coming, so I will build an ark. Faith and obedience. I believe your word and I'm acting on it. And the result of God's call and faith and obedience as a response of Noah ended up being a covenant which now governs and maintains the relationship between God and Noah and we see every other human being who would come after Noah. Do you guys see it? You're kind of quiet, so I don't know if you're thinking or bored. But hopefully you're thinking. All right, let's go to the second example. The second example follows, and it's Abraham. Abram was in the land of Ur. God comes to Abram. He hasn't changed his name yet, so he's referred to as Abram. And he says to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And then he makes the promises, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So that's the call. So God chooses Abraham, calls him. Abraham 
what we would expect if the pattern holds true is that he will respond with faith, trusting God's word, and it will be evidenced by his obedience. Verse 4, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Now we, if the pattern holds true, we should expect that a covenant should be enacted. Three chapters later, Genesis 15, and on that day the Lord Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. Are you guys tracking with me? So now all of a sudden we're introduced to Moses, Exodus chapter 3. Remember Moses is out in the wilderness and he's minding his own business and this bush lights on fire, but it's fire and the bush is not being consumed. And Moses is thinking, oh, that's weird. So he heads on over and God speaks to him in the burning bush. And he says to Moses in verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God chooses Moses, calls him. Now what we should expect if the pattern holds true is that Moses is going to believe God's word and evidence that faith with obedience. And you, you've read that before from chapters 3 all the way through. The plagues happen. Pharaoh finally lets the people go. And they are rescued through the Red Sea. And then we get to chapter 19. If the pattern holds true, we should expect a covenant. God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians in chapter 19 and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What's weird is God says, I want you to obey me and keep the covenant. What's weird is... There's no mention of a covenant before chapter 19. So you're like, well, what covenant are you talking about? I can't keep what I don't know. And many of you know what Exodus chapter 20 is. It's when God gives the Ten Commandments. And we read as Moses reflects on this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13, he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. So the pattern is... God chooses and calls a man to action. The person responds to God's word with faith and obedience. And now that relationship is governed and maintained by a covenant. So the covenant doesn't make the relationship. God's choosing makes the relationship. And now it's governed by the covenant. Now if this pattern holds true, then we should see that in David too. And I won't bore you with the details because we just got done with First and Second Samuel, so you should be able to recall this, right? First Samuel chapter 16, David is out tending the sheep. God calls David to be the king over Israel through the prophet Samuel. And he calls him to wait patiently until the throne is his. So David responds with faith and obedience and waits patiently for the throne. And then Second Samuel chapter 7, God establishes a covenant with David. The pattern holds true. So then we get to the new covenant and we ask the question, does it still hold true? In fact, it does. For God calls people that because of Jesus Christ, God's one and only son, who has done everything that is necessary and everything that's required to be made right with God and to be forgiven. If you will trust that God declares to you that Jesus is enough, that Jesus has paid your, for your sin, that he has risen from the dead and he will grant you new life. If you will trust that and believe in it, evidenced by your action of repentance, 
then you will be entered into the new covenant and all of the covenant blessings as we sang about earlier will flow down to you through Christ. It, the pattern holds true. Now when we think about the covenant and we think about God's choosing, always people are like, no, that's so unloving. You can't love people and choose some and not others. And I'll get to that in a second. But when you look at it, you realize actually God's covenant and God's love go hand in hand. When God reveals himself to Moses, it's, it's one of the most amazing things. Exodus 32, the nation of Israel is at the base of Mount Sinai. Uh, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. While he's up there, the people grow impatient. They decide to collect all the gold and make for themselves a golden calf to worship. God says, Moses, these people are acting crazy. You need to get down there. So Moses gathers the two tablets. He walks down the mountain, sees them all in their idolatry, throws the tablets on the ground. They shatter. And God says, I'm about to destroy these people. And Moses intervenes and says, no, 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 not yet. Don't do it. Wait till you hear what I have to say. So Moses intervenes. And we pick it up in chapter 33 where God says, okay, I, I will do, verse 17, what you asked me to do. In verse 18, Moses says, show me your glory. In other words, would you comfort me by your presence? God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. What's interesting is verse 17, God says, Moses, I know you by name. But I think now it's time that you know me by name. You are Moses. I am Yahweh. And then it goes on and it begins to describe what's going to happen in chapter 34. God has told Moses to make two new tablets and God will write the Ten Commandments on them. Verse 4, so Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and went to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. He took him in his, the two tablets of stone in his hand and Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. To the fourth, third and fourth generation. Verse 10. God says, I'm making a covenant. And I'm going to do for you things that you wouldn't even believe if I told you. The last sentence is, it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. So what happens is God is saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you. But in making a covenant with you, I want you to know me. I'm Yahweh. So I'm in personal relationship with you. I'm Yahweh and you are whoever you are. And this covenant is an expression of my love for you. That I am a steadfast, loving God. I'm a covenant-keeping God. That is who I am. That is my nature, is to love those who are in the covenant. So the Lord is going to work for Israel because of the covenant. And Yahweh has established the covenant to govern their relationship because he loves them. He loves them. Now we see this put together more fully in Deuteronomy chapter 7 where we see God choosing and we see God's love and, and the covenant all come together. Deuteronomy 7 where Moses writes, For you, nation of Israel, you are holy people to Yahweh your God. 
Yahweh, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possessions out of all of the peoples who were on the face of the earth. That's an amazing statement. Can you imagine the nation of Israel like, God chose me? I kind of suspected it. I mean, I'm kind of awesome. So I kind of knew it was coming. No. Why did God choose Israel and not the other people? It says, verse 7, it's not because you were more in number than any other people of the Lord that he set his love on you and chose you. Because setting his love and choosing are the same. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because Yahweh loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Verse 9. Know therefore that Yahweh your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. I want you to know me, God says. I'm Yahweh. I am the Yahweh God who is steadfast, who is faithful, who is true. I keep my covenant. And if you are in the covenant, you can never, ever be plucked out of it. That's who I am. God chose Israel because he loved them. It wasn't because they earned his love. It wasn't because they were somehow the mightiest or the best or the most awesomest. God chose them because he loved them. His action of loving and choosing them for no merit of their own is what the Bible consistently calls grace. It's just grace. This is how God works in redemption. Adam didn't choose God. God chose Adam. You imagine such a thing? Adam doesn't even exist. Hey, God, can you make me? Can't work. So God chooses to make Adam, calls him to faith. Adam fails, and you all know what happened after that. Jerk. God chose Noah, called him to faith. Noah responded and succeeded for a while and then failed. God chose Abraham, called him to faith. Abraham responded with faith. Failed and then did pretty good after that again. God chose Moses, called him to faith. Moses responded. At first, not so good, then good, then not so good again. Then God chose David, called him to faith. David did a pretty good job, then failed, and then at the end kind of was okay. It leaves us at the end of the Old Testament going, is God going to choose anybody to actually do what he's asked them to do? Without ever failing, where is the truly faithful one who will come and do what God is asked to do? Who is the truly faithful one that will redeem a people, that will save them from their sins? And it longs and, and it just hovers as an echo and just kind of this deep want. I want somebody better than Adam, than Noah, than Abraham, than Moses, than David. I want somebody better. And brothers and sisters, we get somebody so much better. God chooses his son to be faithful for us so that through his love, sacrifice, and faithfulness, you and I can be members of the new covenant. Some people balk at this idea of choosing in love. 
If you chose one and not anyone else, then you are not loving. And I would say, I get that, but that's silly. Here's why it's silly. I got married on this stage. I don't know if you guys knew this or not. In 2005, I got married on this stage. And I swore an oath to my wife, Heather. She was standing over there. I was here. And we swore to one another that while there's breath in our lungs and blood pumping through our bodies, I'm yours. And she swore that I was hers. In that swearing, we established a covenant of love. And I remember looking at my wife in the face and said, of all the women, when we put on our rings, and I do this as I do, I do weddings now, I say, of all the women in the world that I could have chosen, I choose you. And I love you. And by this ring, I marry you. Now, if it's true that if you choose one and not everyone that you're unloving, then the only conclusion is Phil hates women. <laughs> because I've chosen to covenant with Heather exclusively. I've chosen to covenant with my wife, and I told her I love her. I love my mom. I love my daughter. I love my sister. But I love my wife in a completely unique and different way. But just because I love my wife in a unique and different way doesn't mean I hate every other woman on earth. That's silly. In fact, if I said that I love all of you women in this room the same way I love my wife, not only should you leave the church, <laughs> but many husbands would find me in the parking lot. Because we know that when you establish a covenant with someone and you choose them and you say, I love you, and the oath I'm swearing this day to love you from now until we're dead. To think that that applies to everyone is just ludicrous. Let me ask you this question, brothers and sisters. When God describes his relationship with Israel, what metaphor does he love using? Marriage. When we're told in Ephesians 5 that Christ loves his church, it happens in the context of what? when the Apostle Paul is talking about marriage. In other words, God loves his people with whom he is in covenant relationship with in a very distinct and unique way, which is different than the way in which he loves those outside of the covenant. But it does not mean that he hates those who aren't in the covenant. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God loves the world. But you know what? He has a special kind of love for his bride. And we should expect so. So my question is, how do we experience this love? How do we experience the intense, life-giving, uncompromising love of God that he has for his bride, his church, his people, his covenant members? And the answer is in two ways. This is how you can experience God's love. First, you experience God's love in the person of Jesus. We read in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 10. But I'm going to specifically highlight verse 9. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, which means made known. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for sins. 
And then we know that God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. And we read in Romans 5.5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so from those verses we learn that only by believing that Jesus was sent into this world to be crucified and risen from the dead for us, so that we might be forgiven of our sins and that we may have life in his name by the Holy Spirit. Only through believing and trusting that can we ever experience God's steadfast, faithful, strong, and everlasting love. It is reserved for those who are in the covenant. So I just simply say, brothers and sisters, make sure that you are remembering the covenant. And if you're not yet a Christian, I'm telling you, God, yes, loves you, but he has a unique, specific kind of intense love that he wants to lavish upon you that you can only experience if you will hear the call of God, respond with faith and obedience, and enter the covenant of God in which was enacted and established by Jesus Christ. You have to get in Jesus. And the only way to get in Jesus is by faith. So only those who are in Jesus can truly experience that overwhelming Love of God. Now, the second way we experience God's love is in the church. This sounds bizarre, but let's go back to the metaphor. Christ loved his church. So remember what Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do? He died for his church. So what that means is as we gather together every Sunday, every Lord's Day, as we gather together, we're not just strangers in a dark room singing songs. We are a family. Though we may not know each other's names yet, when we are in the new creation, believe me, we got all the time and we will know one another. But while we are still on this earth, this, the local church, I don't mean the you know, just invisible, like church at large. I'm talking about the actual skin on the bone, actual in the flesh, stinking and smelling and singing off key and dressing weird. People that you share pews with, they are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And when we love one another, that is when we experience the love of God. I love the church because in the church, I get to experience God. And so that's the second way we experience the love of God is church. Now, I know many people sleep in. They got other things to do. I know they got football to watch. I know they got sleep to catch up on. I know they got sports activities to get to. But just remember, we're forsaking the experience of God's love by missing out. I, for one... I want to remember that God loves me, that he gave his only son for me. I'm way over time, and I apologize. So I need to pray so we can go. Father, we are endeavoring to get into this series of the covenants, and it's a deep concept. It's, I just pray, Lord, that you would time and time again reveal yourself to us. So that when we see you revealed through these covenants, see how you relate to us. God, that you would knock our socks off. That you would wow us with wonder. And so I pray, God, that you would meet with us through the next seven weeks. That you would receive all the glory. 
that we would be filled with joy in knowing that we are in the new covenant because of Christ. His name we pray. Amen.